Okay. Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to finish chapter 15. Been in Corinthians for 10 years now. <laughs> Hasn't been that bad. But it's a rough book. And remember, the last two weeks, we've been talking about the resurrection timely that we'd be talking about at the same time that we had Easter. So we've had weeks and weeks of resurrection, which is a good thing, because it really is the central part of the gospel. We've talked about how it's important in so many ways. This is what has been handed down to us um, by the church in scripture, by the apostles and prophets, and so all these things are uh, a part of what we are supposed to be a part of. And so this is a cornerstone to our faith. And we talked last week about how that is to take place and how Christ has set in motion so many of the things that we are dealing with and recognizing now and that we have moved from death to life, that we have victory because of Christ, that the last enemy, death, has been conquered, and what that means for us. And so we're going to continue talking about this, I think. You know, we mentioned it before that resurrection wasn't uh, an appealing idea to really anyone in that period of time, to the Jews or to the Greeks. The idea of resurrection... Um, had it with it a dead person being back alive, there, there was decay involved, which meant you were unclean a, as a Jew. It was almost like they had this Michael Jackson thriller video going on in their head. You know, it's like zombies walking around. That was the idea of, you know, resurrection, you're dead. And so they didn't really understand what it was like. And what does resurrection look like? What, what does that really translate to and why does it matter why does it matter that we understand not only the resurrection of jesus but the resurrection of our own bodies as well and so paul is going to talk about that now not the the resurrection of jesus so much but how that now affects us and why that's important and so let's read verses 35 44. And it says, But some may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. And the New International is really um, pretty light here. It, it more accurately says, You fools. Um, Paul's being pretty harsh here, and we're going to look at why. He says, How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. And so Paul starts describing these things. Let's go on and read a little bit more. So 
so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. As we start off, we need to understand that the word resurrection and the idea of resurrection, the scriptures know nothing of resurrected spirits. Whenever there is resurrection, there involves a body. That is kind of what the heart of Paul's message here is about. But what does a resurrected body look like? That's what we want to kind of talk about here. But we need to understand that resurrection always includes some form of body. And Paul's talking about various types of bodies, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, and we're going to get into what he's trying to portray through these things. But I want to ask a question. Why is he being so harsh when he starts off and he says, you know, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body will they have? How foolish are you fools? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Why do you think Paul has so harsh a tone? What do you, why is he getting down here on these people? What do you think? Well, and he is putting his foot down, but it's a reason, and it's contextual. I mean, the things that we've been talking about here are explaining why he is getting a little bit upset. Remember in verse 12, he said, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So we know that, Many of the Corinthians didn't believe there was a resurrection. Why not? They just didn't think God could do something like that. That was beyond God's ability. And so really what Paul is doing here is he's putting his foot down and he's saying, how can you guys not believe that God can do something like this? That's why he's so stern here. It isn't just because he's a hothead. It isn't just because he's upset. He's, he's upset because they do not really believe that God can do this. And, and so what he's going to go and do is give some examples of how this takes place. And one of the things he starts off is he, he kind of gives creative examples, how nature around us has shown us the resurrection power and differences that can be seen. And he talks about a seed, which is taken really from Jesus' own words. And John 12, 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And what goes into the ground, you think of a seed. This is so amazing. A, a, seed, a seed is bare. It, it has no animation, no life to it. You know, it's, it's something that's dry. It's just a little, they don't even taste good except for maybe like some peas or something like that. Most of them, it's got a hard shell. There's just this lifelessness to it. But you put it to the ground and it starts to decay and all of a sudden it becomes vigorous, it becomes green, it becomes beautiful, it becomes alive. And you can't tell what it is by just looking at it unless you're 
horticulturist or whatever those people are who know what seeds are. You know, unless you see a seed, you might know, oh, that's a watermelon seed, or is it an apple seed? I don't know. How do you know? You can't tell just by looking at it. It doesn't seem to have much form, but once it goes into the ground, it dies, it takes on a whole new form. It becomes something other than what it was. And you see, what Paul is trying to disclose here is that God is going to change us in the same way. He, he gives those same illustrations to us, how you can't tell what we are yet by what we have in this body, that this body, like that seed, is going to change. You know, we think we're alive. We think we have this life, but Paul is saying, no, there is a resurrection that's going to take place, and you're going to find out that this body was just like that seed. It was lifeless. It was dry. It was hard. It, it had no motion. And then it's going to really come to life. And so Paul is giving them this natural example God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. And he goes into some other descriptions about flesh being different, how there's men, there's animals, there's birds, there's fish, there's all these different kind of animals. And why is Paul now listing these differences? What, what does he mean by there's, you know, man have one type of flesh and then there's birds and then there's fish. What point is he trying to, to get to? And he's saying, if God is not restricted to one type of body in creation, in other words, if he's able to make reptiles and mammals, he's not limited. We're not all the same. If he's not limited, why should he be re restricted in a resurrection body? If you see one form of animal, are we all the same? And you look at a, a tortoise, for example. Tortoises are trippy. I like looking at tortoises. I mean, they're just so scaly and kind of, you know, slow moving. They can actually move pretty quick. They're determined and they have that hard shell. And you just look at it. And, and what if you were to say that's how, that's how all things are? But we know that's not. I'm not like a tortoise. I might be a hard head, but I don't have, you know, a shell like a tortoise. That's one type of body. I'm another. And so why would it be surprising that God would have us have one type of body and in the resurrection give us another? And so his point in this area is trying to show us that God is not restricted in the type of bodies. Each heavenly body is unique in creation as well. Sun, the moon, the stars, they're all different from the things that are here on the earth. The resurrection is simply another aspect of God's creative work. And to think that death is so final is to forget who God is and what is obviously his work all around us. And so what Paul is driving home in these verses is you guys don't believe in the resurrection, you think it's too much, but look at the different types of things going on here. Look at the seed that has to die to come alive. Look at the, the different types of creation that God has placed in the animals and the heavenly bodies. God is able to do so many things. Do you really think 
having a resurrection body is going to be difficult for him. And that's why he was coming down on them because they were limiting God, saying resurrection just can't happen. We don't see it, we don't believe it, can't happen. And I think a lot of us fall into that same trap where we doubt because we don't see it and it becomes something that is foreign to us. And God has given us examples and little glimpses of this all around us to try and help us to see exactly what's going on. And then he tries to apply this illustration. In verse 42, he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The idea of perishable means corruption, natural condition of our current state. The idea of dishonor or weakness, it, it embraces all the miseries that we endure within our own bodies in this earthly life. The humiliation in our condition um, that is our bodies that we face. That means illness. That means fatigue. That means death. It, it covers all those things. And what Paul is saying is this body that we have is susceptible to those conditions. Have you ever seen someone who's been in the hospital, maybe has had cancer, and as their body starts to deteriorate, many times you'll hear it's like, it doesn't even look like them. They don't even look like the same person. Their body has deteriorated so much. Why? It's the weakness. It is perishing. And Paul is saying this, this body that we have is perishing. It's going to die. And what needs to happen is we need a new body. One that is not going to die. One that is not perishable but is exactly the opposite of these things that is imperishable, is raised in glory, and is raised in power. Now, all these things and descriptions, there's only one person we know who has a resurrected body. That's Jesus. We know he had a body. Because he said, look, handle me and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bone. As you see, I have. And, and so we know that Jesus did have an actual body. But it was unique. He showed up in rooms that were locked. So he's got this kind of Houdini ability. You can show up and pass through doors and it's not a problem. That he was veiled from people seeing him. There was something unique in his body, and that's the only resurrected body that we know of and that we have to relate to because that is what we are going to be like. And it's hard for us to imagine a life without this body. It's hard to imagine getting up in the morning and not having a stiff back because I'm just used to it now. It's hard to imagine not having hay fever or allergies come the spring and summer. It's hard to imagine not needing glasses. It's just hard to imagine these things that have become the norm for us. 
And Paul is saying that this is the progression, that this natural needs to be changed. That this mortality needs to take on immortality. And we are consumed with the natural. We spend more time trying to keep age from taking over us than we do spend time in trying to invest in our spiritual health. The hair products, the skin products, the vitamins, the surgeries, all these things to try and keep this looking good. And we're focused on that, and there's nothing wrong with being healthy. It's nothing wrong with those things. But what seems to happen is we're just trying to to put out of our minds the fact that we are dying. We just don't like to think about it until there's a funeral or something, and then we're forced to think about it. Otherwise, we're just kind of, I'll wait, I don't want to think about that now. I don't want to think about dying. I don't want to think about that, and then we've got to go to the doctors because we're sick and we get scared. Oh, no, what if they tell me something serious? Then the fear comes in, and then the thoughts, oh, no, I'm, I'm dying. But, you know, the death rate today is the same that it's been for thousands of years. It's still one per person. Everyone is going to die. That's how it is. And no matter what you do, no matter how much you jog, how much you run, no matter what vitamins you take, it is inevitable. You might be able to add some years to your life, but eventually we're all going to die. And people measure God's goodness based on the perishable things, on the material. You know, oh man, praise God, I, I got money back from my taxes. God showing favor on me. God blessed me. Oh, God blessed me. I always use this one. He gave me a parking spot real close to the front of the building. As God's favor is shining on me because he helped me in some natural way that is in a limited way, and that becomes our focus. We, we base God's love and blessing on our material status and position. God loves me because I'm healthy. God loves me because I have money in the bank. God loves me because life is going easy. God loves me because I am happy with the way things are going. And we base God's goodness on our natural situation. And the natural situation is going to die. And Paul is trying to open our eyes to see that where you are putting your priorities is misplaced. Jesus said it this way, why do you store for yourselves treasures on this earth where thieves can break in and steal, where moth can eat it, where rust can decay it? Instead, store treasure in heaven where those things can't take place. And he brought it to a conclusion wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. And what he's addressing to the Corinthians is your heart is all about the material. 
It's all about you getting more money. It's all about you getting the things that you want to satisfy this natural body. And don't you realize that it's going to die? It's kind of a, a rude awakening here. The natural is the material that is formed by and for a soul to host the life of breath that God gives. You see, we only have so many breaths. God's given us a life and we only have so many breaths in this life. And we don't know how many. If we knew, it would freak us out. Because you think, oh no, I'm half done with my breaths. <laughs> Take the elevator, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Try and conserve on my breaths because I don't know, no, no more running for me. Got to save those breaths. I'm going to breathe slower. Try and keep the inevitable from happening. We only have so many breaths here, but the spiritual body does not mean it's a body composed of spirit. Rather, it means a body formed by the life which is in the spirit. In other words, it's different. And he goes on to tell us some of those contrasts to give us the idea of these differences so that we can get an understanding of a little bit more of what he's talking about. In verse 45, he talks about some of the contrast here. He says, let's finish reading verse 44. It says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. That's good news. There, there's hope. We're moving in this direction. And here he's showing the contrast between Adam and Christ. The, the contrast is significant. There's a different body, and it's not like it's just a different material. It's not like you're talking about, well, this ship is made out of wood, and this ship is made out of steel. It's talking about more like this, this ship is a rowboat, and this ship is a steamboat. One has no movement, one has no dynamics, the other is animated and has life. It is powered by different things. Adam had life like we do. We're all aware that we're alive, but it's not powerful enough to keep on living. In other words, it can't sustain itself. It comes to an end. That was the life that we had in Adam. It was of this earth. It was earthly. It was limited. It didn't have power to carry us further. This other life that is of the last Adam, Christ, is spiritual. And this life has power. This life has the ability to continue it's animated by the life of God himself. And, and just like we've been talking in Corinthians about this life that God gives, this spiritual body is connected to the life of God that we see powered in Jesus, that we see 
the power transforming as was in Jesus. So now, death does not stop the life that God gives. Without this spiritual life, we are of the earth, earthly, we die, and our life doesn't continue with God. The spiritual life connects us to God and we do not die. We become like that seed buried in the ground. This body decays, but there is a resurrection body that comes from this. And again, he sustains us and makes us alive. We now bear his image. Just like we were bearing Adam's image, now we're bearing the image of Christ so that we will have this life also. And so the, the power of resurrection in Jesus isn't that Jesus just conquered death. It's that his life is what is going to change these bodies so that we too can have victory over death. That there will be a new body that we inhabit. One that doesn't have the pain one that doesn't grow old, one that doesn't have the disease, doesn't have the, the problems that we face, one that is like his body. And, and there's a number of scriptures that talk about this. Philippians 3, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the work, working by which he able which he is able even to subdue all things. So he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, his being Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Again, we are going to be like Jesus. That is the body that we are going to have. We are going to have a resurrected body, one that is victorious. And this is what we have hope for. And I think, again, what we're starting to see here is that so many times our hope is placed on the smaller things, the temporary things. You know, I hope I get the good parking spot. Whoopee, that's it. You, you've gotten what you want. I hope I get a good tax return. Whoopee, that's it. It lasts for a week. You know, uh, we hope we're going to get something that's temporary. And Paul is saying, you guys, our hope is much bigger than that. Our hope isn't just like, gee whiz, I hope so. It's we have a confident expectation that God is going to change our bodies and we are going to live with him forever in this spiritual body that we don't know fully what it's like, but we've got glimpses as we see it in Jesus. And it's amazing. And you see, heaven is much more than singing to God forever. Heaven is living, but without the decay. It's living, but without the sin. It, it's life like we've never known it before. It, it's enjoying life to its fullness the way we were meant to enjoy life. It is being who we were created to be. It is connecting us back to God. And 
You have to imagine the things that you do and you're able to enjoy, whether it is an activity in sports, whether it's in music, whether it's in, in thinking or, or partaking of whatever it is, we only get a taste of those things. And there is so much more that we are going to be able to live and enjoy the way we were made to. And so when someone says, well, you get to go to heaven, and you think, so what? What's that? You know, we're going to be on clouds playing harps. You know, we have to go to church every day. Is that heaven? You know, all we're going to do is sing. No, that talks about food being there. Okay? Food. Good food. And you don't get overweight. And you get to enjoy the food. And you get to enjoy the people around you, you, you get to really be alive. And that's our hope. And so, stop worrying about the parking spaces. Stop spending so much energy on the small things. And don't lose track of the big things. The eternal things. We live in this world and we move forward with that light touch in this world, not being controlled by it, but using it to move our lives forward with our eyes and our hope on those things that are ahead. In verse 50, he goes on and he says, So I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory." Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now what Paul is coming through is he's sounding this victory. When it talks about the, the inheritance of the imperishable, the perishable putting on the imperishable. And he says, I, I want to tell you a mystery. The idea of a mystery is I want to reveal something. This isn't like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. It's I want to disclose something to you, but it's only disclosed by a revelation that comes from God. And he says, here is the change that is going to take place when Christ returns. And then he uses this, this idea of a trumpet blast. And he tells us that we will be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. And what he's doing here is he's basically saying that the taunt of God is this trumpet that is just mocking death. That God is now taunting death. I don't know if you guys ever remember Braveheart. You guys ever remember the movie Braveheart? And you have this time where they're all facing each other. And then they turn around and they lift their kilts 
and they just kind of are taunting them. They show them their behinds. They're kind of going, na 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 na. I know you're saying, is that an illustration or what? <laughs> the idea here is God is saying, there is nothing you can do. I am not afraid of you. The trumpet's going to sound, and it's already done. We have already won this battle, and so we just lift our nose at you and say, you don't matter to us anymore. And this is what was set in motion when Jesus rose from the dead. And this is what we get to inherit. And the idea of this trumpet sound, it's Jeremiah talks about this last great battle. Isaiah, the trumpet sounds and the people of God from the four corners of the earth come together. And Zechariah, the trumpet sounds and announces the coming of the Lord. And here Paul is using it to announce that the dead are coming out of the grave, that death has no hold and God is taunting death and saying, you have no hold on me. And we get to claim that. God has taunted death, has shouted out through this trumpet, and we enjoy the spoils of these things. And we see that there has to be a change. That all that we have, this perishable, needs to put on the imperishable. This mortality needs to put on immortality. This corruption needs to be changed. It's going to be changed. It's going to happen. And I love, he, he says, the saying is written, then it's going to come about, the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. And I just love that. And, and this change is going to happen like it's no problem. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. It's just going to happen. It's going to be like just putting on a new shirt. And it's done. Death is conquered. And I love this. Oh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? There is the taunting that's going on. The scripture gave me an idea for a tattoo that I probably never will have because I don't like needles. But even just a picture. And, and I have this picture of death with his sickle, with his robe, his black robe, you know, the skull, the crossbones. I have this picture of death on his knee holding up his sickle to Jesus. Because Jesus says, it means nothing. Where, where's your victory? Where's your sting? I have conquered death. You have no hold on me. And death is swallowed up in victory. And, and I love this picture of death just surrendering because there is no hold and God is taunting death and shouting, saying, this is going to happen. Now, that's where we're supposed to live. That's the identity we are supposed to have. These are the people that we are supposed to be. Paul is using this kind of military metaphor that was set into motion when Christ rose from the dead. The battle's been won. The trumpet is sounding. We're moving forward into victory. And we're taunting the enemy because he has no hold. He has no sting. He has no victory. Yeah, this body, this mortality will die, but we will live forever. And we will be raised at that time. Now, here's a question. Okay, if we're going to be raised, when does that happen? 
when the return of Christ comes, it talks about the resurrection of the dead. What happens in the meantime if someone dies between now and when Christ returns? Paul tells us to be absent from this body is present with the Lord. So are we left without a body until the resurrection? That's where some people get different ideas. And, and let me throw this out to you just to try and keep our minds in the right perspective. Because I think we, you know, so many people try and plan out. They, you guys seen those? They have a big wall board and it shows the whole end. You know, here's when the trumpet sounds. Here's when these people come. and there's, Everyone wants to figure out what's going on in the timeline. But you see, God isn't in time. Time doesn't have relevance to God. He's not, oh no, that was yesterday. Yesterday and today and tomorrow aren't an issue for God. And, and so it's not a problem for a person to die a hundred years ago and Christ to return whenever he returns and the bodies be changed and for God it be the same time. Just throw that out to you, okay? Mull that over in your mind because I don't think we're going to fully grasp this because we are limited in our understanding. And I don't want to pigeonhole God and start listing things and I'm not going to get a big board and try and identify when everything happens because every time I've seen someone do that, it's been inaccurate. What I think is important, what Paul is trying to, to present here isn't when is Jesus coming back. What Paul is presenting here is what's going to happen to us because of what Jesus has done. And that's the important thing. And that's where he goes to in verse 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Stand firm in what? What are we supposed to stand firm in? Again, remember our context. This isn't a trick question. Stand firm, what have we been talking about? The hope, the imperishable body that we're going to have, the immortality that we're looking for. Stand firm with this understanding of who we are, where we're going, what our hope is. You see, the perishable is always taking shots at our hope, isn't it? Isn't this world just always just trying to beat us down with our hope in God? It's always just trying to wear us out. Where I feel like, man, I just can't get over the problems. It's one after another. If it's not financial, it's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. There's just one attack after another and it's constantly just trying to beat us down, beat us down so that our eyes and our attention gets focused and gets locked in on the temporary and we lose our hope. And Paul is saying, stand firm. Where? In the victory that you already have in Jesus, that you have a hope that is up here that nothing can take away. It is already done. Don't lose sight of who you are. Don't lose sight of what Jesus has done and who he has made you to be. That this body is going to decay. It is temporary. 
but there is a spiritual body waiting for you. Don't lose hope. Stand firm and don't let anything move you from this understanding of where you and I are in Christ. And you see, this is having to do with our citizenship. This is us having to do with living a life that honors God. This, this is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus lived. He was aware of the eternal, even though he occupied the temporal. And he didn't lose sight of the big picture. We need to stand firm and not let anything move us and not let our eyes be taken off the bigger picture, which is the hope that we have that this perishable is going to put on the imperishable, that this is going to get us a lot more than a good parking place, that this is something that we have hope in. And then he goes on and he says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord. I love that because it makes it sound like it's a specific thing, but yet it encompasses everything. I mean, what is the work of the Lord? Well, it's whatever we do that's connected to the Lord. Whatever we do that is connected to the things of God is the work of the Lord. Another movie, uh, Gladiator, remember when they're going to attack those people and he says, whatever we do in this life echoes in eternity. I love that. You know, and it's what we do in this life, we can do for the work of the Lord or we can just do it for the temporary. What are we connected to? The work of the Lord are the things that will last. Jesus gave that parable about the person who did those things for the wrong reasons, and as the fire went through, nothing but hay and stubble all got burned out. But the things that they did for the Lord, those things came through and were shining forth and had enduring power. The work of the Lord are the things that we do for God, the things that we do for the Lord will outlive our bodies. And it's amazing and a hopeful thing to think that you could pray for someone and even after you die, your prayers are still active. That God still hears and honors your prayer even though this body may have died. Amazing. Why? Because it's the work of the Lord. You see, it's not a matter of being involved with ministry or things like that. The work of the Lord is recognizing that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. In other words, whatever you do in your life that is going to honor God, it is not in vain. And that is a promise that we need to hold on to, that the things we do for God are not in vain. I don't know how many times in, in counseling, when I'm counseling husbands and wives, where a situation is taking place where one of the people involved is unfaithful, is not being responsible, whatever the situation is, is causing difficulty in that marriage relationship. And I share with the person who is going through the time of difficulty how you react is important because if you do the right thing, 
it's not in vain. In other words, it will still have validity in your life. The psalmist says, whoever trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame. What does that mean? It means if I believe and trust God for this circumstance that's difficult and hurtful and hard to go through, God is not going to let it go without being valuable to me. In other words, if I do it for him, it won't be in vain. And it's an amazing thing to see people hold on to the truths of God and to see their lives move forward and see the one who walks with the Lord, even though they're hurt, they're the ones who end up staying strong and end up living lives that have God's blessing on it and those who don't, and you see them fall deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the way it is. Our work for the Lord will never be in vain. Whatever we do for God will not be wasted. And so what do we, what will we give for this? I mean, what will we sacrifice for these things? Think about the things that bother you as a follower of Christ that, you know, people who talk down to you because you're a follower of Jesus. You know, Bill at work, you know, I talk about my life in Christ and he thinks I'm an idiot. Bill at work thinks I'm stupid. Am I going to let Bill at work determine what happens to my life? I've got the resurrection of life waiting for me. I'm going to cater to Bill. Why would we do that? You see, if I keep in mind and focus the things of the Lord, then it won't be in vain. These things will have meaning. They will have validity. And that's what Paul is trying to get to us here, that the work of the Lord, because of our labor for him, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. And so let's keep the priority those things. Let's not live our lives as if this is all we have. Let's use what we have to live our lives for the life that God has for us. And there's a difference there that we need to understand and see, which I think is Paul's point here. Are there any questions in what Paul or what I've said here? If you guys don't have any, I've got a bunch, but anyway. Any things stand out to you in these verses? Okay. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, I know that I fall prey so many times to taking my eyes off of eternal things and placing them on temporary things, of wanting to just satisfy my life here and losing perspective of the bigger picture and the bigger life that you have. Lord, help us to recognize our priorities. Lord, this, this doesn't mean that we are people who don't enjoy living. But what this means, Lord, is that we are people who 
don't make this life the priority, but we make living for you the priority, and everything we do, we can do for you, that we can honor you in everything that we do if we have the right perspective, if we see things clearly. And Lord, I pray we would stop focusing on the things that are so small. We would start, stop putting our hope on small issues and put our hope in big issues and allow those things to influence the small ones. Lord, we all pray for health. We all pray for strength. We all pray for healing. We all desire these things, and you give these things. But, Lord, this is only temporary. Our hearts are made for heaven, and we will not be satisfied until we are with you. There is nothing this world has that will satisfy us. Father, many have had all they could fill and have left, been left empty. Lord, may we not make the mistakes that they have made. May we set our hearts and affections on the things of heaven where thieves can't steal, where moths don't eat, rust doesn't corrupt. May our treasure be in you. And may you, in turn, Lord, give us this hope, give us lives that are filled with joy because of the hope we have. And I pray you would be our strength, Lord. I thank you again for your faithfulness, your goodness, and your mercy on us, Lord. I pray these things are, are fruitful in our lives, I ask in Jesus' name.